We have been spending this summer uh, learning from the Psalms, and just in case you've been trying to figure out kind of a pattern of which Psalms we're preaching on, there's not one. It's kind of just random. So there you go. But we are in Psalm 90 today. So if you have your Bible with you, flip it over to Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is a psalm that as we read through it, you, you may be familiar, you, you may hear words that you have heard before, and possibly words that you have heard um, at a funeral. Very oftentimes, Psalm 90 is used at funerals. It is one of the places, probably along with Isaiah 40, where we have the most exalted language about who God is, and some of the most truthful and honest language about who mankind is. I think we're going to find, though, as we read through this psalm, uh, some really fruitful uh, material here for us. Because as we come to know who God is more deeply, and as we come to know who we are more deeply, He actually works really wonderful things in us. So, again, open up to Psalm 90. Let me read through the entirety of this psalm for us. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust, and you say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and it's renewed, but in the evening it fades and it withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for what it reveals about you and for what it reveals about us. Lord, we need to hear from you. We need you to speak. We have sung that prayer that you would speak, O Lord, and that you would work in us. So now, Lord, we say it. Please open your word to us and open our hearts that we might hear what you have to say. May the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight today, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you guys have seen, uh, maybe ever gone to a movie. Let's say it's the opening of the new Star Wars movie. 
And you see those people who come and they've been there for quite some time and they're ready for the Star Wars movie and they are dressed ready. And I don't mean like they brought a sweater because it might be cold in the theater. Like they're dressed in Star Wars gear. Like somebody's wearing a lightsaber hanging off his belt or a tunic of some sort. And the women have, you know, their hair kind of in those Princess Leia side buns. Somebody showed up in a Wookiee costume. Maybe you've seen, maybe you've, maybe, maybe you are that person. Not that there's anything wrong with it, okay? Uh, I've always wondered, why do people do this? Why do people go to all of this effort to dress up to go see a movie? They're not acting in the movie, they're just watching the movie. But I've realized the answer is really pretty simple. It's because the more you immerse yourself in the experience, the more heightened the experience is. When you are immersed in something, it's better. It's more fun. It's more exciting. The experience is just richer and fuller. If you've got your Bible open, you may actually see right at the beginning of Psalm 90 this inscription that it's written by Moses. Moses, one of the most important characters in the Old Testament, the man who led God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery, is the one who wrote this psalm. So it tells us a couple of things. First of all, God's people have been reciting this psalm for quite some time long time that God's people have been using this psalm. But the second thing that it's supposed to do for us is it's supposed to kind of immerse us back into the story of the Exodus. Back into the time when God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and was bringing them into a new land. Let me just give you a really quick recap of that. When you finish uh, reading Genesis, at the very end of Genesis, you find God's people growing and becoming a large nation, but they're doing so in the wrong land. They're in Egypt. And so this king of Egypt decides, too many people here, I'm afraid of them, and so he makes them his slaves. And for many, many years, hundreds of years, God's people continue to grow, but they grow in slavery. And they cry out to the Lord to rescue them, and he sends them Moses. And Moses comes, and through Moses, God rescues his people out of Egypt. He brings plagues on Egypt. Crazy, miraculous things happen. He walks them through the bottom of the Red Sea by parting the waters. And then he brings them to this new land where he's told them, this is where I'm going to place you so that you can actually bless the world. So that you can minister to the world and the nations around you. I'm going to put you here so that I can work my redemptive mission to renew all things through you. That's really the story of the Exodus. And it's in Exodus. If you read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you're going to read amazing things about God. Just incredible things about how he he brings miraculous plagues on Egypt. How he has incredible power over his creation, parting the waters of the Red Sea. How he really destroys all the enemies that would rise up against his people. You learn so much about who God is, and he's so big in Exodus. And you learn also about who his people are, and who mankind in general is. Usually they're complaining... Usually, they're moving away from God rather than toward Him. Usually, they are turning to other gods rather than the one who has rescued them. Psalm 90 is calling us to immerse ourselves in that story and to immerse ourselves in those kind of two big questions. Who is God and who is man? 
In fact, if you're kind of new to the Bible or if you're old to the Bible but you just need some a little boost studying the Bible, those are two great questions to ask anytime you open God's Word and read any passage. Simply ask, who is God displayed to be in this passage and who is mankind? That's going to get you really far in your Bible study just by going through those two questions. And those are the two questions that we're going to deal with this morning. Because Psalm 90 is also a fabulous place for us to learn more about who God is and who man is. And then we're going to see that there's some implications for that. Some implications for us when we get that equation right. When we understand rightly who is God and who is mankind. So, Psalm 90, first of all, we'll deal with that first big question. Who is God? Well... Right out of the gate, you see Moses saying in Psalm 90 that God is eternal. Look at verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He doesn't say from beginning to end, you are God. Because even if the time is really long in between the beginning and the end, it still has a beginning and an end. What he says is from everlasting to everlasting. God does not have a beginning or an end. He is eternal. He is infinite. And then he says it again in verse 4. A thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it's past. So for us, a day is like a thousand years or more to God. Time is something that he is above because he created it. So God is first of all presented as everlasting, as infinite. And God's people have believed this for quite some time. There's a a 6th century creed called the Athanasian Creed. And listen to what it says about the Trinitarian God. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Spirit is eternal. That is one of the major things that we get from looking at this psalm is that God is eternal. He is infinite. He is above time and space. Secondly, we see that God is not only eternal, but he is the creator. Look at verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The Hebrew of this, the language here is actually really descriptive and poetic. It's almost like a birth scene is being described. And God is the one who is before all, who is bringing all things out of nothing. He is the creator of all of it. Not only eternal, but also creator. And then we also see described in Psalm 90 that God is eternal and creator and he is the ruler over all of his creation. Just listen again to verses 7 through 9. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set your iniquity, you set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Does that kind of Make you squirm? We don't like really listening to passages like that. We would much rather hear God is love than we would rather hear God is angry. But the truth is, God is the ruler over all things. And all things are meant to bow before him. Let me ask you to put your Moses costume back on again. We're going to immerse ourselves in the Exodus story. And just think with me about this. 
God comes and he tells Moses, he says, I'm going to rescue my people. And I'm going to do it in an amazing way. I'm going to bring these plagues upon Egypt. Plagues, some of which are look like natural disasters, some of which are totally crazy, like turning the Nile River to blood. Or millions of gnats just infesting everything. And what God is doing is not only wearing down Pharaoh so that he can bring his people out, but he's also displaying his greatness amongst all of the other gods. See, in Egypt, they would have had gods for the Nile, gods for the sun, gods for things like gnats and anything that was, uh, that was created. They would have gods specifically for the animals that brought them food. And God is saying, listen, you've got all of these gods that you think are giving you everything that you need. I'm going to display my dominance over all of them and show you once and for all, there is one God, the creator of all things. He is over all of his creation. He can control the waters. He parts the Red Sea and they walk right through, amazed. Jesus will do this for his disciples in the New Testament, right? When he calms a storm and his disciples say, we don't even know what to do with this guy. He can, he, he speaks words and the storm stops. God is displayed as the one who is mighty, the ruler over all creation and over all other false gods. But he's also the one who is ruler over us. The people that he has created. If God is infinite, if he is infinitely worthy, then we are meant to bow. The proclamation of the Bible is that every knee will bow before him. Is that everything in all creation is meant to come and to worship him. That is the way that it's supposed to be. And when things aren't the way they're supposed to be, there is tension. There's conflict. That's what we're reading about in Psalm 90. The conflict that comes with a God who deserves our worship and a people who don't give it. Conflict. So if we've said that's who God is, He is almighty, He is majestic, He is ruler of all, He is infinite, and He is worthy of our praise and our honor and our worship. Let's turn to look a little bit at ourselves. Who are we? Well, if you look at verse 3, you find very quickly Moses saying what mankind is. You return man to dust. And you say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in God's sight are like yesterday when it's past. In verse 10, he says something similar. The years of our life are 70 by reason of strength, even 80. He's very just plainly saying, listen, mankind has limits. We are finite, ephemeral even, that we actually have a very small little speck on the map of time. We, we only occupy a tiny, tiny bit of it. He's multiple metaphors here going on. Listen, he says that we are swept away like a flood in verse 5. He talks about mankind being like a dream. A dream just goes away. Most of the time you don't even remember your dreams. They just kind of vanish into the air. That mankind is like a watch in the night. And what happens with a watch in the night? It ends when the morning comes. That actually mankind is like withering grass. That when the rain comes, everything springs up green, right? But then when the rain doesn't come, like all of our grass in our yards, it's brown, it's dry, it withers up. That's the way that he describes mankind. Ephemeral, finite, limited. And then he goes on even to say that mankind is even culpable. 
that the fall, that our fallen nature, not only has brought us finiteness, not only has brought us limits like death, but actually has brought sin into our lives. And so we're culpable as well. In verse 8 he says, you've set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins are in the light of your presence. We remodeled our house a couple of years ago, and what we did was we remodeled all the parts where other people would come in and see them. We did not remodel the parts that other people won't see. So if you ever go into the master bathroom in my house, it will not feel very master bathroomy. Okay? There is, there, there's 1975 wallpaper all over the walls, and ev- like nothing has been touched. And the reason is it's kind of in the inside. It's the private places of our house that we're not really going to let a lot of people in. We've said, if you walk into our house, you're, oh, what a beautiful house, right? But you just don't know the inside because <laughs> you haven't been there. Our hearts are like that too. Our lives are often like that. We present on the outside something that we want people to see. Look how wonderful and shiny and tidy I am, but you can't see the inside. Well, guess what? Psalm 90 says that God sees right through it. He sees right into the 1975 wallpaper. He sees right into the really yucky parts of our lives that we'd rather not anybody see. And when he sees it, he sees it as wrong. He sees that there is something broken within us. So who is mankind? The answer is that man is finite. Man is in a word, is small. When what we've seen before is that the picture that Psalm 90 paints of God is that He is enormous. A big God and a small self is the picture that we get from Psalm 90. But that's not the picture that we oftentimes get when we walk out of our houses, is it? In fact, the message that we oftentimes get in our lives is, you know, the bigger you are, the better you are. The more you can kind of inflate yourself, the better life is going to be. And instead of saying, Lord, teach us to number our days, what we've actually said as a culture is, let's figure out how to fudge the number of our days and kind of cook the books so that we can make it feel a lot bigger than we are. We do a lot of things to ourselves and our lives to make us feel like we're not growing old. To make us feel like there is no end to our life. To make us feel like we don't have to number our days because they're just going to keep going and going and going. I mean, we have enormous amounts of energy spent in our culture trying to pretend like we're not aging. There's a a really wonderful book that Dr. Bird recommended to me by uh, a surgeon named Atul Gawande. It's called uh, Being Mortal. (coughs) Excuse me. And he really comes up with this um, this amazing irony. Particularly it's about medicine, so he's talking about, um, about the medical field, but what he says is like, listen, there's one thing that we know about humankind. There's one thing that we know about life, and that it's going to end. We know as human beings, we're all clear on that, is that we are going to die. But as a medical community, the thing that we have put all of our effort into is making sure that the one thing that we know is going to happen doesn't happen. He tells a story about his grandfather uh, in India, who at a hundred years old would get on a horse and ride his fields every night to check on things and make sure everything was okay. 
And he says, you know, in American culture, that would, that would never happen. He would have ten people pulling him down off of that horse saying, you can't get on a horse. You're a hundred years old. You're going to fall off the horse. You're going to hurt yourself. Something's going to happen to you. And Gawande says, he's a hundred years old. He's going to die. Like, let him get on the horse. It's amazing the conflict that we've put ourselves in because we don't want to recognize what is the most plain. And that is that we are to number our days. There's a really fascinating book, a good book, called When People Are Big and God is Small. This is a very, um, this is a very helpful title for us here today because we've said that God is big and people are small. What happens when you reverse it? What happens when you get that equation kind of messed up? Well, not only does it affect the way that we understand our lives and our finiteness and really the old whole idea of numbering our days, but it actually changes the way that we look at the people around us and the motivation for living our lives. I want you to just listen to this little story that he starts with. He says, my, my personal awakening, this is a man named Ed Welch is who wrote it. He says, my personal awakening to this problem came when I was a high school senior. I had always been shy and self-conscious, controlled by what my peers thought or what they might have thought, but I never considered it seriously until the day of the awards ceremony. I was up for an award, and I was scared to death that I would get it. The auditorium was bulging with over 2,000 high school juniors and seniors. From the back, where I like to sit, it seemed like a good mile or two up to the platform, and all I could think of was what my classmates would think of me while I walked up to the front. Would I walk funny? Would I trip going up the stairs? Would some person, and I prayed that it wouldn't be a girl that I liked, think that I was a jerk? What about those who were also nominated, or they thought, and they thought they were deserving? Would they think, what would they think of me if I won instead of them? What would I ever say for a brief acceptance speech? God, please don't let me get this, I prayed. After a number of lesser awards were announced, the vice principal went to the podium to introduce the winner. He began with a short, somewhat cryptic, biographical sketch. It didn't sound exactly like me, but it was generic enough to fit. And so I was starting to sweat. But I sat motionless for fear that someone would think that I was getting interested. And finally the announcement came. And the winner of this year's senior award is Rick Wilson. Rick Wilson? I couldn't believe it, of all people. No one even thought he was a candidate. Now you can imagine my reaction, right? Relief. No way. I felt like a total failure. Now what would people think of me? They knew that I was up for the award and someone else was chosen. What a loser I was. Immediately my mind began spinning out justifications. Well, if I had worked at at this this year, then I would have won. I certainly had the potential. I just didn't want to win. Hey, I'm a late bloomer. When I go to college, all of this will change. Pitiful, isn't it? Later that day, the events replayed in my mind. What a mess, I reflected. I live like a frightened child. I'm so controlled by what other people think or even what they might possibly think. In college, I tried to combat this beast with a few quasi-successes in academics and athletics. And I used the, I could have done better if I really tried strategy. But this thing was ever-present. I was a Christian, but that didn't help me put up a fight. I still felt it. Every rejection... Every perceived failure, every person I wanted to be noticed by who didn't notice me, or every person I wanted to be noticed by who didn't notice me, reminded me that I was still the kid sitting in the back of the high school auditorium. 
Now, I think if I asked each one of you, um, does this sound absurd to you? You would all probably nod your heads. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. And then if I asked each one of you, have you ever felt like this? You probably all would nod your heads. Yeah, absolutely. See, what happens is that when we give God-like status, God-like bigness to others, to either ourselves or to the people around us, what happens is we begin to worship them like gods. We begin to worship what they think of us. We begin to worship what they even might think of us. We begin to worship how much they desire us. We begin to worship what uh, position we play in their minds. We have made people big and God small. What happens, though, if we get it right? What happens if we see God for who he is displayed to be in the scriptures? Infinite, majestic, ruler over all. And we see ourselves as the small people that we are displayed to be in the scriptures. What happens then? Well, actually good things. Four of them that I want to talk about this morning. The first is this, is that when we have a bigger God, a big God actually leads to deeper wisdom. Look at verse 12 again. So teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. The numbering of our days, and you could paraphrase that by saying the understanding of the bigness of God and the smallness of ourselves actually leads to deeper wisdom in our lives. Again, we oftentimes have this uh, confused and turned around where we think, you know, the greater I am, the more wise I will be. We have this picture of the sage who kind of sits by himself and is this high and elevated being, and that's what wisdom is. But that's not the case. Wisdom in the Bible you could define as as the skill in the art of godly living. That's wisdom. Skill in the art of godly living. And the way that you develop a skill is you simply sit and watch the master. You learn. You train. As we meditate on who God is. As we see him bigger in our lives. As we see his majesty. His infinite glory. His creative power. He actually begins to work wisdom in us. We grow to be more wise. Here's the second one. Is that a big God actually leads to fruitful work for us. Look at how this psalm ends. Verses 16 and 17. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Did you hear... Those two, those phrases there, those two verses. Lord, show us your work so that our work actually might become meaningful. The more that we see the glory of God's work, the bigger God is in our lives, the little things that we do every day actually become not less important, but more. The regular activities of doing somebody else's taxes or changing a diaper or having a meeting or whatever it is that are the daily regular activities of your life, they become more and more meaningful the greater that we see not our own selves, but that we see the Lord. The truth is very few of us are going to leave a legacy behind in our work. I know we all think that we are, but no one is going to remember your work. They really aren't. But the Lord actually can do something with it. 
He takes our little menial lives and the regular things that we go about doing every day and he uses them according to his amazing, immense purpose. That what we do is actually part of him renewing the world, of reclaiming all things. Of redeeming the world. That's what happens when we see God as big and then go to work with the little things that he's put in front of us. How about this third one? Is that a big God also leads to bigger joy for us. Again, we have been trained that bigger me is more happiness. But that's not the biblical witness. The biblical witness is the bigger we see God, the more joyful and happy we become. This is what he says here in verses 14 and 15. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. See, when we see God bigger, we actually grow in joy, in gladness, in happiness, in fruitfulness. And then here's the final thing. Is that when... God is bigger in our lives, salvation is also bigger. A big God leads to a big need and a big Jesus. If you put yourself back in the Exodus context again, what you see is something pretty remarkable. If you read through Exodus, you see there's kind of this this change where God comes and he not only tells Moses, I'm going to rescue you, I'm going to take you out of slavery, and I'm going to bring you to this new land, but he says something really amazing, really important. He says, I'm actually going to come and dwell with you. I'm going to live with you. I'm going to set up shop like right next to you. I'm buying a house in your neighborhood. Well, what we have said is that God is infinite in glory and in holiness and mankind is not and is sinful. How in the world is that going to work? How can a holy God set up shop right next to an unholy people? Well, in the Old Testament, actually the book of Leviticus introduces the, uh, the solution to that problem. And we're shown what it's like for atonement to be made for sin. We're shown what it's like for substitution to be made. And as we open up the pages of the New Testament, we see Jesus as the fulfillment of those promises. The one who comes and bridges the gap between an infinite God and a small and finite people. We see Jesus filling what we cannot fill on our own. I mean, did you, did you feel the tension even as we read through Psalm 90? Verses 3 through 11, they're talking about the smallness of, of mankind and even talking about the culpability of mankind. But verse 1, as we started out, said, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. You've been our dwelling place forever. So how do you get the dwelling place of God and a sinful, culpable, finite mankind? It's only found in Jesus. Who said, Remember the words of John in John 1? That Jesus, the eternal word, came and dwelt among us. That God has dwelt among us. And because he has done so, that we, that he can actually be our dwelling place. We find here uh, that uh, he says that all our days pass away under your wrath. You bring our years to an end like a sigh. You set our iniquities before you and our secret sins. We are brought to an end by your anger. Friends, how can we see our salvation clearly? It's only by seeing that Jesus has actually taken that anger. That Jesus was brought to an end by the anger of God. That Jesus took the wrath that we deserve. And it's in seeing Jesus as the one who fills that gap 
big God, small man, that we actually see a big salvation. And we come to see ourselves as those who have been rescued and have been given the love of Christ. We can only see ourselves who we really are when we see God who he really is. That's the only way that we get to see the salvation that Jesus has really accomplished for us. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we want to just spend a couple of minutes um, sitting in this, um, maybe even some awkward silence, realizing that we are not as big as we think we are. Lord, we do pray with Moses that you would teach us to number our days, that you would teach us to see you more clearly, that you would teach us to see ourselves more clearly. Lord, that you would show us what it means to understand how big you are. Because, Lord, it is there that we find your steadfast love in putting all of our sin on Jesus. In bringing us to yourself so that we might dwell with you because of what he has done. Lord, remind us of that today. Remind us of the good news of the gospel. That you have done for us something that we could never accomplish on our own. And Lord, let us live in that truth today. That in seeing you larger and larger, you might create in us wisdom and fruitfulness and joy. And you might always remind us of our need for the saving work of Christ on our behalf. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.